0: jesse Raphael, jerry springer jenny jones turn on a television between 9 a.m and 3 p.m during the 1990s these are the faces that greeted you and kept you company there was no shortage of daytime chat shows that brought real people into the limelight to tell their stories they offered up 15 minutes of fame before the next episode pushed someone else into the spotlight most people would be unable to provide any details or information about the individuals featured on the shows. These people whose lives, secrets and dirty laundry were on display for all to see. Scott Amador, he loved daytime talk shows. His night shift hours meant that he was home during the day, and he was obsessed with watching them. He thought Oprah's approach to her show was kind of dull. He liked shows with more shock value and more airing of Dirty Laundry. And his favorite was The Jenny Jones Show. Jenny Jones filmed at NBC Studios in Chicago, and it ran from 1991 until 2003. By the end of its 12-year run, they had filmed over 2,000 episodes and had over 50,000 guests. The show was hosted by Jenny Jones, a former musician, backup singer, and comedian, She once opened for Jerry Seinfeld and Bob Saget. Jones gained the attention of television producers when she won the Star Search Comedy Grand Prize, becoming the first woman to receive the award. When her show first aired, the format included celebrity guests and segments on exercise, cooking, and fashion. By the second season, the format began to change, and the show would have normal, everyday people who had interesting or unusual stories they showed that instead of focusing on celebrity guests. And when the focus shifted, the ratings soared. In early 1995, show producers planned an episode entitled Secret Crushes on People of the Same Sex. The episode, to be taped in March, would feature men and women who wanted to tell their same-sex crushes how they felt about them. When he saw the call for guests, Scott picked up the phone. But before we can talk about the show and the grim aftermath of the taping, we need to go back, back to where our story began, with the lives of two young men. Scott Bernard Amador was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on January twenty-fourth, 1963. Scott's parents, Frank and Patricia, they moved Scott and his four siblings to Waterford, Michigan when Scott was around five years old. Waterford one of Detroit's northern suburbs, was a middle-class community known for parks and airport and access to plenty of lakes. Two years after the move, Frank and Patricia divorced. They shared custody of the children, and the kids would regularly go between their parents' homes. When his mother, Patricia, remarried, Scott acquired two step-siblings. Family and friends described Scott as compassionate and generous to a fault. He would give the shirt off his back if he thought it would help someone. In the 80s, when some of his friends became sick with complications from the AIDS virus, Scott was there to care for them. That's just who he was. And when Scott was 17, he left high school to join the Army, where he became a satellite communications specialist. During his four-year contract with the military, Scott was transferred to Germany, where he spent his free time learning to ski. He enjoyed skiing until an accident in Switzerland left him with a broken leg. And once his four-year contract was up, Scott decided to leave the Army and he received an honorable discharge. While Scott never openly explained his reasons for leaving the armed forces, his friend and roommate, Gary Brady, speculated that Scott left the service after realizing that he was gay. You see, in the 1980s, it was still illegal for those from the LGBTQ community to serve in the military, and staying with the Army meant that Scott would need to hide who he really was. After his discharge, Scott used the skills he learned in the military and worked in communications before he decided that bartending was a better fit for him. Scott was a night owl, and tending bar allowed him to live on his preferred sleep schedule. And when it came to his personal life, Scott was in several relationships, but none lasted long or became serious. In the early 1990s, two of the men that Scott was involved with accused him of assault, but those charges were later dropped, and we don't have any further information on those charges. One day while visiting his friend, Don Riley, 32-year-old Scott was introduced to her neighbor, 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz. Schmitz was at Donna's place doing some work on her car. Scott took an instant liking to Jonathan and developed a crush on him. Scott told Donna about his feelings, and Donna in turn told Jonathan that Scott thought he was cute. Jonathan was flattered, but he was not interested in Scott. Jonathan Tyler Schmitz was born on July eighteenth, 1970, to parents Alan and Connie. Like Scott, Jonathan grew up with four siblings in small-town America. Jonathan loved being outdoors, and he loved spending time in nature. His family described him as a sensitive child, one who struggled with a sense of belonging. As a young boy, just three years old, Jonathan would bang his head against the wall when he was frustrated. By age 16, Jonathan was battling through periods of depression. After graduating from Lake Orion High School in 1988, Jonathan enrolled in Sumi College, a private Lutheran school located in the Upper Peninsula, but he decided this wasn't the right path for him and he dropped out after only two weeks. He moved back home and took a job waiting tables and sometimes worked for a roofing company. Jonathan's moods would swing sharply and he attempted to die by suicide on three separate occasions in his late teens and early 20s, In 1989, after a suicide attempt, Jonathan was taken to the hospital by ambulance and he was admitted to the mental health ward at Crittenden Hospital in Rochester, Michigan. Crittenden is now called Ascension Providence Hospital. It's still there. Now, when he was admitted to the hospital, he was supposed to complete a two-week psychiatric program, but because he was 18 and legally an adult, He could check himself out when he wanted, and he left the hospital after only a week of treatment. After this abbreviated course of treatment, Jonathan started drinking to excess and smoking marijuana. After another suicide attempt in 1992, he started seeing a psychiatrist, and he was prescribed Valium and Zoloft. But he was not compliant with his medication for long. By 1994, he'd stopped taking the medication and planned another suicide attempt, after he was fired from his job at the roofing company. Thankfully, he did not follow through with this attempt. In 1994, Jonathan was diagnosed with manic depression and suicidal tendencies. And soon after, he was diagnosed with Graves' disease. Graves is an autoimmune disease that causes thyroid overactivity and, in some cases, can cause neuropsychiatric symptoms such as anxiety, mood disorders behavioral, and personality changes. And I'm not a doctor, but I would guess that the Zoloft was prescribed to alleviate some of those symptoms and improve Jonathan's mood and functioning. 1994 did have some bright spots for him. He took a job at the Fox and Hounds, a local eatery where he worked as a busboy and later as a waiter. Jonathan loved his job and he seemed very happy there. His mother said, quote, he had finally found his niche. When The Jenny Jones Show put out a call for expressions of interest for a segment on same-sex crushes, Scott Amador got in touch and he told them about his crush on Friend of a Friend, Jonathan Schmitz. The show was interested in having Scott and Jonathan on the show and producers contacted Jonathan to pitch the idea to him. A secret admirer show. Someone has feelings for you. Would you be interested in coming on TV? At first, Jonathan said no, but he was curious as to who the admirer could be. He wondered if it was his ex fiance. The couple had recently ended their several years long relationship, or maybe it was one of the girls from work. So he spoke to Donna and to Scott about the call from Jenny Jones' producers and he asked them if they had anything to do with it. You see, the producers who were coordinating the appearance. They told Scott and Donna to deny everything if they were asked, and that's what they did. They told Jonathan, no, it wasn't them. They didn't know anything about it. Jonathan thought about it for a day or two, and then he contacted the producers and said, yeah, he would do the taping after all, because he was so curious who his secret admirer could be. Jonathan was not told the title of the episode, although producers said they informed him that the admirer could be male or female. Jonathan told the producers he wouldn't want to appear if his crush was a man. And plans had continued. So, as far as Jonathan knew, his secret admirer was a woman. Jonathan was excited about being on television and he went and bought a new outfit for the occasion. He spent over $350 on clothing for the appearance. He wanted to look good and he wanted to make an effort, especially since if the crush was his ex, his former fiance, Jonathan was going to propose to her right there on the show, right there on television. On March 5th, Scott and Donna started their journey to Chicago. They flew out of Detroit Metro Airport, and they arrived in Chicago well before Jonathan did. The show invited Donna to appear since she was the one who introduced Scott to Jonathan. And later that same day, Jonathan made the same trip, Detroit to Chicago, by himself. Jonathan was kept separate from Scott and Donna the entire time prior to meeting on stage. Separate flights, separate transportation, and separate waiting areas backstage. You see, it was essential to the success of the episode for Jonathan to be surprised on stage. The cameras would catch his genuine reaction. But Jonathan was nervous. He called his father from a payphone at the airport before he boarded the flight. And told him about the taping. Right before he went on stage, Scott and Donna were in one part of the backstage area, and Jonathan was in a different backstage area. He was wearing headphones to muffle any noise. He could not overhear what was happening only a few feet away on the stage. According to Donna, who was interviewed later, producers offered her and Scott alcohol and encouraged them to have a drink or two before going on stage. Perhaps producers hoped that some liquid courage would stop any thoughts of backing out. When they received their cue, Donna and Scott walked on stage, took their seats next to each other, and waited. Jenny Jones stood in front of the audience and addressed the camera, hypothetically asking how a person would confess their crush to a person of the same sex. Would they write a letter? Would they have a private conversation? Or, would they appear on a television show and tell them about that same-sex crush on camera and hope the feelings are mutual? After that last option, the crowd went wild, clapping and cheering, and that's when Jenny Jones introduced Donna and Scott to viewers. Jenny tells viewers that Donna has been helping her friend, quote, pursue his crush, and she reassures Scott that Jonathan has headphones on and won't be privy to the conversation happening on stage. Jenny began asking a series of prying questions, prompting Scott to talk about meeting Jonathan and revealing intimate details about his feelings for him. Scott tells Jenny that when he met Jonathan, Jonathan was underneath Donna's car fixing her brakes, and he could only see half of his body poking out from under the vehicle. As Scott gives a shy smile, Jenny prompts Scott to talk about what he thought of Jonathan and what fantasies he had about him after that encounter. She pulled more and more intimate details out of Scott as he gave a bashful chuckle. Jenny confirms that Jonathan knows Scott's sexuality, but Scott didn't know if Jonathan was gay or not. And listeners, that's not true. Donna has already told Scott that Jonathan isn't interested. Scott tells the audience the features that attracted him to Jonathan. And all of this unfolds just before Jonathan is brought onto the stage, having no knowledge of the graphic conversation that just occurred. When Jonathan arrives on stage, Donna stands up and a smiling Jonathan walks toward her and greets her with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. When Scott stands up, Jonathan reaches out for a handshake, which Scott accepts before pulling him in for an awkward hug that Jonathan pulls out of. Jonathan takes the empty seat, which places him next to Scott, and Jenny asks Jonathan, Does he think Donna is the one with a crush on him? Before Jonathan can give his answer, his response would have been, Donna and I are good friends. Jenny reveals that Scott is the one with the crush. Jonathan, still smiling, turns to Scott and Donna and says, You lied to me, before he gives a hesitant laugh and claps. Then, The producers play for Jonathan the comments that Scott made before he came onto the stage. So awkward. Jonathan is clearly embarrassed and taken aback. Jonathan tells Jenny he had no idea about the crush and that he identifies as heterosexual. He says Donna once told him that Scott thought he was attractive, and while he was flattered, he didn't share those feelings for Scott. Jonathan talks about meeting Scott and tells the viewers that Scott commented on the peace sign that was on the back of his car, and the two struck up a conversation from there. When Jenny asked Jonathan for a final time to confirm that he was not interested in Scott, he was not given time to answer before Jenny interrupted him, turning to Scott to say, are you glad you came and told Jonathan how you feel? With the taping over, Scott, Jonathan, and Donna flew back to Detroit. They had a few drinks together in a bar at the Chicago airport prior to boarding. Then the three sat separately on the plane. Jonathan confided in his seatmate about his experience in Chicago, telling her that he had a, quote, bizarre day, and he'd been lied to by his friends. When the plane landed, Jonathan drove everyone home from the airport. The trio were seen drinking together at Brewski's, a bar on Lapeer Road in Lake Orion, before they continued their drinking at a friend's apartment hinting that the three remained friends after the taping. However, Jonathan's father, Alan Schmitz, he reported receiving a phone call from a very intoxicated Jonathan that night. During the call, Jonathan told his father, through tears, that that things had not worked out as he'd hoped. He didn't want people to see the episode, he was worried about it. He told his father that he was devastated, and he admitted that he was worried what people might think of him when the show aired a few weeks later. Specifically, he told his dad he was worried that people would think he was gay, and what the repercussions of that would be. Alan said that he would have driven to his son to console him in person if it wasn't for an ice storm that night that made traveling dangerous. Jonathan's parents were again very concerned about their son's mental health, They were worried that there could be another suicide attempt in their son's future. In the days after the taping, Scott and Donna met at Donna's apartment. During the visit, Scott wrote a note that he then left on Jonathan's apartment door. The note said, John, if you want it off, you'll have to ask me. P.S. It takes a special tool. Guess who? Along with the note, Scott left a blinking light and some caution tape. Jonathan found the note on March 9th. He got into his car and drove to Scott's trailer home, making two stops along the way. The first stop was at the bank, where he withdrew money from his savings account. The second stop was to buy a gun, a 12 gauge pump action shotgun, and ammunition to go with it. His third and final stop was the home of Scott Amador. When he arrived at Scott's trailer, he sat in the car, the engine idling. He sat there for a few minutes. Leaving the gun in the vehicle, Jonathan made his way to the front door and knocked. Scott's roommate, Gary Brady, answered the door. When Jonathan demanded to see Scott, Gary said Scott's shaving, and he let Jonathan in and pointed the way toward the bathroom. Scott kept shaving as Jonathan confronted him about the note, the tape, and the lights. Jonathan told Scott he'd left his car running and he would be back once he'd turned it off. Jonathan did return to his car, but not to turn the car off. He went back to the car to get the shotgun. When Jonathan knocked on the door again a few minutes later, Scott answered. Gary reported that Scott said, he's got a gun and he's going to shoot me. Before Gary heard the gun go off as Jonathan fired at Scott. Scott fell to the floor and Jonathan fired again. Gary, terrified, ran and hid for a few minutes. When he emerged, he saw Scott bleeding out on the kitchen floor. Gary called 911 and summoned an ambulance. Although Scott lived for a few minutes after being shot, he died from his injuries before the ambulance arrived. Jonathan fled the trailer home after the shooting and went to a nearby gas station in Auburn Hills where he used a payphone to dial 911 and turn himself in. During the call, Jonathan confessed to shooting Scott citing his upcoming appearance on the Jenny Jones show as the motive for the murder. As he spoke to the dispatcher, police arrived. He then hung up the phone, put his hands in the air, and told the arresting officer that he'd killed someone. Jonathan Schmitz was taken into custody without incident. At the station, officers questioned Jonathan about the events leading up to the shooting. He told the officers that he couldn't stop thinking about what had happened at the taping and he was feeling anxious and worried about the show airing. With growing concern over his appearance on the show, Jonathan had stopped sleeping and started drinking heavily. Jonathan was charged with first-degree murder and using a firearm in a felony, and he was held without bail. On March 10th, with the assistance of his lawyers, he entered a plea of not guilty. His legal team attempted to claim that he had diminished mental capacity and was therefore not able to stand trial. They argued that his recent diagnosis of Graves' disease, which causes overactive thyroid and can lead to increased anxiety, was the reason for him killing Scott Amador. Attorneys posited that the disease impacted his nervous system and rendered him incapable of acting with intent. A series of psychiatrists were brought in to perform assessments, and Jonathan appeared to cooperate with some of the doctors and not with others the judge ruled that his, quote, selective cooperation showed that Jonathan was competent and could stand trial. Jonathan's lawyers then moved to get his recorded phone confession excluded from evidence, arguing that he had not been read his rights prior to making the confession. The motion was unsuccessful, and the taped confession remained in evidence. When the media got a hold of the story, they blamed The Jenny Jones Show, saying that their poor handling of a sensitive topic resulted in the shooting. Jenny Jones herself released a video statement in response to the criticism, saying that the shooting was caused by Jonathan. His actions alone were to blame. Oakland County prosecutor Richard Thompson, he agreed with the media. He said the show had ambushed Jonathan and humiliated him. Had the taping not occurred, Scott would still be alive. Gay rights activists were understandably outraged. Lester Olmsted Rose, executive director of San Francisco's United Against Violence, said, quote, There is such a willingness to buy into the fact that a same-sex attraction is so repulsive that people now consider it a defense against murder charges. In response to the comments made by prosecutor Richard Thompson, gay rights activists said that the prosecution, quote, only reinforced the notion that a heterosexual who finds himself the object of a gay man's affection might have reason to feel humiliated. Listeners, as an aside, it's amazing to me that this was less than 30 years ago. That people still felt this way and this situation brought up so much shame and anger and confusion. It's just, I have a lot of feelings about it. Jury selection began on October 8, 1996, and the pool of 150 potential jurors was whittled down to 12. The trial began on October 14th in Oakland County Circuit Court in Pontiac. The prosecution said the motive for the murder was homophobia. The lawyers for the prosecution argued that the killing was premeditated. The planning started when Jonathan found the note from Scott on his apartment door. Remember, Jonathan made multiple stops on the way to Scott's trailer to withdraw cash and buy a gun, showing that he thought about his actions and he had time to stop himself. The court heard the audio recording of Jonathan's 911 call where he confessed. They also heard audio from the 911 call made by Scott's roommate after he found his friend bleeding to death on the floor. Jurors were shown autopsy photos that illustrated the extent of Scott's injuries and they were told that the second bullet was fired after Scott was already incapacitated. It was overkill. The defense argued that Jonathan was not to blame for the murder. The Jenny Jones show was. They ambushed him and he felt embarrassed and betrayed by his friend Donna and by Scott. The defense also brought up Jonathan's mental health struggles and claimed he didn't have the mental capacity to plan a murder. The defense continued that at the time of the murder, Jonathan had been drinking and taking drugs and he hadn't slept. They brought this up because they wanted to prove their point about Jonathan's lack of ability to act with intent. The prosecution pushed back the defense's attempt to move that blame off of Jonathan They didn't want them to move the blame onto anyone or anything else. They saw Jonathan as responsible for Scott's murder. Jonathan's father, Alan, he was called to testify about his son's mental health history, as well as give details of the mental health struggles of other members of the Schmitz family. Alan revealed that he was a recovering alcoholic and there was a long family history of mental health struggles with both his grandmother and his aunt having spent a considerable amount of time in psychiatric facilities. The unaired segment from the Jenny Jones show was played at the trial. The court saw how Jonathan seemed in good spirits on stage, although he was a bit sheepish. The defense said that despite Jonathan appearing to be fine when the segment was filmed, in reality he was upset and embarrassed by the ambush. Jenny Jones herself took the stand. And she explained that she was not hands on with the planning of the show. It was a regular occurrence that she didn't know about segments until shortly before they were filmed. And she told the court that she didn't see anything wrong with the segment, she thought it would be well received. She took offense to the episode being called Ambush Television. Producers from the show also testified, and it was revealed that Jonathan was led to believe that his secret admirer was a woman. With testimony complete, the jury deliberated for two and a half days. It was up to them to decide not only if Jonathan was guilty, but to decide if he was guilty of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or manslaughter. On November thirteenth, 1996, the jury found Jonathan Schmitz guilty of second-degree murder and guilty of a felony firearm charge. At the December 4th sentencing hearing, assistant prosecutors asked the judge to hand down a life sentence. Scott's mother, she also called for Jonathan to receive a life sentence, while Jonathan's father, understandably, he asked the court to show mercy and give a lenient sentence to his child. At the sentencing hearing, Jonathan gave an apology to the court and to the Amador family before receiving a sentence of 25 to 50 years in prison for second-degree murder as well as two years for the felony firearm conviction. The two sentences were to run consecutively. Jonathan would be required to serve at least 20 years behind bars before he became eligible for parole. The defense lawyers were unhappy with the sentence. They said it didn't give enough weight to Jonathan's long mental health history. In response, the judge said that he did consider Jonathan's mental health. However, Jonathan had to be held accountable for his choices. Gay and lesbian rights activists who had been watching the case closely said they were pleased with the outcome. Christina Quinn, executive director of the New York Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project, said the conviction sent a, quote, very important message and showed how far society had come, saying that 15 years ago, she doubted the same trial would have ended with a conviction. The result of this trial showed that progress was being made. Jonathan's lawyers appealed his conviction, and one of the grounds they used was jury selection error. The appeal outlined how, during jury selection, both the prosecution and the defense were allowed 12 preemptory challenges. That means they had 12 opportunities to object to a proposed juror being chosen with no reason given one juror was accepted on day two of selection. However, on the final day, the defense changed their mind and wanted to use one of their preemptory challenges, having used only five of their available 12. When the prosecution objected, saying the defense should not be able to use one of their challenges on an already accepted juror, the court sided with the prosecution and the juror was allowed to stay. The Michigan Court of Appeals was asked to reverse Jonathan's conviction on the grounds that the court did not allow the defense to use their preemptory challenge. The court agreed with them, and on September 11, 1998, Jonathan's conviction was reversed and a new trial was ordered. On August 19, 1999, the second trial began. This time, Jonathan faced a lesser charge of second-degree murder. Not content with this, the defense pushed for the jury to find Jonathan guilty of manslaughter. During the retrial, the defense was not allowed to use Jonathan's mental health history as evidence. Instead, the defense focused their blame on the actions of the victim, Scott. The defense argued that Scott provoked and harassed Jonathan, and Scott's own actions were the reasons for his murder. The prosecution refuted the claims of the defense, calling the murder an execution and saying the murder was an overreaction to, quote, mere embarrassment. Oakland County Prosecutor Donna Prendergast said, quote, the only reason that murder is an issue is that Scott Amadura was gay and Schmitz's manhood, so to speak, was insulted on national television. Well, you know what? Get over it. This time, the jury deliberated for only three hours before returning a guilty verdict, and on September 14, 1999, Jonathan was, once again, sentenced to 25 to 50 years for second-degree murder and two years for the felony firearms charge. Jonathan Schmitz returned to prison to continue serving his sentence. But listeners, that's not the end of the story. The Amador family filed a wrongful death suit against The Jenny Jones Show, and they sued them for $71.5 million. The family claimed that Scott's death was a direct result of his appearance on the show, and the actions of Warner Brothers, who owned the show, and Telepictures, who produced it. In the suit, the family claims that the show ambushed Jonathan by not giving him all the information about his appearance on the show. This lack of information incited violence, and this is something the show should have been aware of. They should have foreseen that Scott's appearance on the show would put him at risk and ultimately led to his death. This trial started on March 31st, 1999, and the defense claimed that Jonathan was told on multiple occasions that his admirer could be male or female, and Jonathan still made the choice to continue. The defense also argued that once the men left the studio, they were no longer responsible for their actions. After a seven-hour deliberation, the jury found in favor of the amateur family and awarded them nearly $30 million in damages. This award was broken down into $5 million for Scott's suffering, $10 million for the family's loss, and $10 million in potential earnings that were lost. Of course, the verdict was appealed. The Jenny Jones show, Warner Brothers and Telepictures argued that they did not have a duty to protect Scott from Jonathan. And in October of 2002, the appeals court agreed with them. The verdict was vacated. The Amador family did not receive any compensation for Scott's death at the hands of Jonathan. Due to good behavior while incarcerated, Jonathan Schmitz was allowed to apply for parole early, and he was granted parole in March of 2017. He served 22 years of his 25-year minimum sentence before being paroled in August of 2017, when he was 47 years old. Schmitz, who turns 50 in July of 2020, has maintained a low profile since his release from prison. If you're interested in more about this case, the story of Scott Amadur's murder was recently featured on the Netflix show Trial by Media. This week's episode was written by the lovely and talented Jessica Ann. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks also go out to the talented and also lovely Cesare of Gray Multimedia. He does our sound work each week. Already Gone releases episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Please support the show by taking time to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher. You can also find the show on Twitter at Already Gone Pod and on Instagram at Nina Instead. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind this week's episode. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.